Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me. This is Stephen Moe, and we're going to be speaking today with Francis Valentine, who's the founder of the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab. And I really enjoyed this conversation with her because we talked about many, many different topics. But one of the themes that came through was the power of curiosity and the doors that it can unlock for us if we're willing to follow it. The interviews I love the best are the ones that are wide-ranging and rambling, and we get into lots of different things. And this is definitely one of those, so I'm going to get straight into it. If you enjoy this, then I can guarantee that there's somebody that you know who would appreciate having it shared with them. And there's heaps and heaps of content in the back catalog. In fact, more than 200 other episodes with inspiring people doing amazing things in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And during the interview, we cross-referred to a few of those other episodes, so there are links in the show notes, in particular Esther Whitehead on neurodiversity and John Berry on finding your purpose. If you want to find out more about Seeds and this project of recording inspiring people and trying to capture their stories, then you can find that at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this interview with Francis. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Francis Valentine, who's the founder of the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab. Thank you so much for joining me. Sure, Stephen. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I know you're involved in a number of different interesting things. But before we get into what you're doing today, I'd love to go back in a time machine and just find out a little bit about a person's background. So in your case, if we could go back, and I'm thinking right back early on, like, Imagine when you were four or five years old, where were you living and what was that like? Okay, so you have to go back a long way in this time machine to mm-hmm. the, uh, the early 70s. <laughs> so uh, in that time, I was uh, on a farm in Hawara in Taranaki. And uh, my, my parents were young and I had an older sister and a younger brother. Mm-hmm. And we lived um, quite rurally. So the, the nearest neighbours to us were quite a way down the road, but they were, happened to be my grandparents. They were my... So if I got on my bike, I could get to my grandparents' house in about 15 minutes. Um, and I went to a, around that sort of time of four or five, I went to a school, which was a very small rural school, school with about 60 uh, students. And it probably grew to about 100 over the time that I was there. So um, quite a different place. And, and if you think, if you haven't lived on a farm, you'll know that you, you really the world is your oyster. Everything is there. You can, you can be an explorer. You can be a hunter-gatherer. You know, you can look after animals. You, you, you know, there's, there's things to play and do. We were very fortunate that although um, my parents didn't have a huge amount of assets, we were very lucky that we had a lawn tennis court, which was basically a, a big uh, lawn with a net across it. But it meant that um, it was a place that a lot of other friends came to. So we'd all get on our bikes and head to each other's houses and... And, and they were the days where all the bikes had uh, like a little, I don't even know call them anymore, like a little thing you could put your bag on the back and you could clip it on or you could sit on it as a friend. And so we would basically have this massive playground of hundreds of acres around us and rural roads. Um, so it sounds like quite an active outdoors sort of childhood then. 
Very much so, yeah. yeah. And actually, one of the big highlights for me when I was young is the road I lived in was such a long, straight road. It had a one-mile straight. So even though we talk kilometres, it happened to be called the one-mile straight. And so drag racing was a thing once a year where they'd close the road and people from all over the country would come to our country road to do drag racing. Wow. Which means that these cars would fly past our front gate at some ridiculous speed. Uh, and actually, my father, one of his real interest was he was a, a stock car driver. So so he was a speed fiend, fiend himself. So lots of activity around that. But, you know, we had things like sale yards, stock yards with, with, where we'd, we'd sell cattle at my grandparents' house down the road. And I would make the asparagus and cucumber sandwiches for all the, all the lovely wives of these farmers. <laughs> it was all very sexist. Uh, while the men would go to the, to the you know, the stock yards and, and select the animals they were going to buy. So. A long way away from technology and, and what I do today. It's really interesting, though, isn't it? Because in some ways, not having access to you know immediate technology or devices, I have, I've got four young children. I have to say, so sometimes we'll say, "Go outside and find something to do," and then the children will say, "I'm bored. I don't know what to do." But it's that getting outside, using the imagination to explore and be creative, isn't it? It is, and, and I was really fortunate that I've, I've always been a creative kid, so I always loved making things. And my father, um, in some ways I look back, he, he was pretty amazing because he had a bandsaw and, and different, um, he had a big, like a, the ultimate man's shed, and he was always, he's a builder, it's a real fascination of his, and over time he actually became a builder, but when I was younger he was working on the farm, and he gave me full access to all his heavy machinery. Uh, there were no... You know, no goggles, no, no sort of things, protection of my ears. Just, but just, you know, these really serious, heavy machinery to cut wood. And so I could actually make things and build houses and, and shape you know, animals out of blocks of wood and things with just with, you know, some basic safety precautions and making sure that I kept, you know, keep my fingers. I was uh, allowed to use that machinery with him with a sort of earshot right. uh, when I was doing it. So and, he, and that creativity was great. Yeah, that, that encouraged the creativity to have that opportunity, I guess. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it does when you're young and you learn to to find your own magic and to find um, ways to pro solve problems. Actually, it carries right through life. It's such a great uh, skill set to have, which you don't necessarily appreciate when you're young and you're just kind of living in the moment. Mm. Oh, that's really good. And you mentioned your grandparents who were just down the road. Can you describe them and what were some of the things that you most appreciated about them? Oh, look, my my nana, as I called her, um, she was so ahead of her time. One, she looked incredibly young. So I would go to school with her and they would all assume she was my mother. Um, and she had this most incredible garden. So it's one of those gardens where my grandfather tended to all the lawns and he literally trimmed around all the lawns so they were perfect. And if you lay down on their lawn, it was so spongy. It was like, a, like you could create angels that you would in the snow, but on the lawn, it was just this immaculate. And we'd play croquet sets on the lawn as well. But the flowers around. So my my, um, my nana actually taught me how to arrange flowers, which is something I still love to do. And so she filled her garden with these incredible flowers and had horticultural tours through her garden. And you know, every weekend I would go with her, pick flowers, arrange them, and we'd take them into hospices and into different groups so that others could enjoy them or the hospital. And so that sort of built that idea of charity and supporting others from an early age. But the other really radical thing about my grandmother was she was so ahead of her time in terms of food. 
I can remember in the, in the 70s when she started growing avocados and this was the weirdest fruit anyone had ever seen. Like nobody knew what that was. And she, everything she ate had to be organic and she didn't want any preservatives in anything she had. And so she had some of that, you know, I can remember having things like smoothies in the 70s, which at a time was milkshakes were the only thing you drank beyond basically milk or water. So she has smoothies and she put wheat germ in them. Now this, why it may sound reasonably normal in today's world, uh, this was so radical that people would come over just to see her make some of these, these, uh, these kind of concoctions of very healthy, um, really kind of about uh, quality of food. You know, she was a big believer in the food and really decided how you lived. And so, you know, I, I adore her for that today because it's really instilled to me this, this uh, real commitment that I have now to the quality of food that I have and what that makes in terms of your health and how you feel about yourself and the world. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? When you think about it, like that's a couple of decades ahead of time. It, of course, it, it now it's an industry, but um, what was it that caused her to be like that, do you think? Or why, why was that a focus for her? So she had um, an amazing orchard. And so she grew a huge amount of um, fruit and vegetables. So the veggie garden was a big part of it too. My um, father moved from being a farmer, he moved into berries. So we actually also had um, commercial berry growing. So we had, food wasn't a, a big part of our lives or the production of food. And then I think that she, you know, I look back, every, everything about it was really informed by this, this sense of um, from the earth to the earth. And it, I mean, at the time, it wasn't unusual for people to bottle their fruit and to, and to, you know, to make homemade bread and to do things. But she took it to the next level. And, and in fact, I'm yet to meet another person who ever talks about having brew facts which was this unbelievably weird substance, which can only be described as looking like, like sawdust. And she'd sprinkle it across toast, which was a yeast extract pre, pre sort of Marmite, or if there was Marmite, we certainly didn't have it back then. And it would, you'd bite into this brew fact on toast and it would stick inside your mouth and you literally couldn't move it. <laughs> it's just the weirdest thing, but she decided, you know, it was something on the, all the health properties of this product. And so, it is quite remarkable of how she's thinking, but I just think it was her her real commitment to saying, if it comes from the ground and it's natural, then it's got to be good for you. Yeah, yeah, that, that's fascinating. Yeah, I always love to hear about people who, you know, a few decades ahead of the trend were already leading the way there. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's one of those things when we talk now to people, say, in the 80s and 90s, We'll talk about a lot of the things we aspire to have today in our lives are actually what were the you know the foundations of their early childhood or in many cases even today they live the same way you know much more around sustainability um and also thinking about products lasting and keeping them and not the sort of throwaway society but actually keeping things forever and fixing them and and um and you know and having you know, there's no such thing as fast fashion when you talk to someone who's who's older in life. You know, they, they do keep things for much longer. And I think there's a lot of learnings that we could take from those who've already done it before us. I agree with you. And one of the problems in our society, I think, is that the generational split happens so mm. that children don't get to know their grandparents the way that it sounds like you did. You know, and so there's a loss of knowledge transmission between generations where we're kind of segmented across, you know, with, with people who are similar ages and things. But the interesting thing for me, just reflecting already on your grandmother, for example, you know, she, it sounds like she was willing to do things a little bit differently 
and stand out a little bit. And I just wonder if when you have models like that as a child, as you grow up, if it's something that you think, well, if my grandmother does this, maybe I can do it in a different area. I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Or? Yeah, I look, it does. And I, actually, for mo both my grandparents, sets of parents, I was very fortunate I had all four of them growing up. Um, they were all pioneers in their own way, um, in, in very different ways. And I think they had massive influence. And actually, my own parents, you know, they were young. They were teenagers when they started their family, got married, like a lot of people back in the day. Mm. And so they had limited means and watching that, how hard work really paid off. Like it was, you know, people say today, you know, there is no success without hard work. And, and I do believe that, but they worked um, relentlessly to make sure that, that what they wanted to achieve, and it wasn't that they wanted to achieve wealth, it was achieve, you know, some of the purpose and some of the impact that they wanted to have. But also some of the, you know, if I talk about like my dad, who who's still alive today, still working um, hard, even though he should be well and truly in retirement, the, the, the great satisfaction of building something from hand, from scratch or planting a garden that you know and, and seeing it flourish and that still continues and I think that when you're around people who create things whether it's a garden or they grow vegetables or they build a house or fix a car you know you, you do see the sense of satisfaction which I think sometimes when we live in this digital world we lose sight of it because we can't see it it's intangible and and it's funny that I live in this sort of intangible world of my career but in my home life it's still very much getting back to crafts, getting back into the craftsmanship of creation, whether it be food or cooking or gardens mm. um, or, or sewing or photography, I still believe you have to have those physical outlets to show because everybody's got this creativity. It's just a matter of how much you hone it. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a lot to learn, I think, from people who do that you know, in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think all of us probably have mentors or people in our past who we could now reflecting realize that there's a lot that we could learn from them. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's um, interesting just thinking, you mentioned sort of fast consumer driven things, you know, and, and I'm just thinking like right here beside me, it's a phone, you know, and when's the newest version coming out and I'll buy it and I'll replace the old one and I'll get the next thing. There is very much this mentality of the, I'll just buy it in uh, rather than repair it or, or fix it or, you know, keep it for a long time. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, just, just last weekend, um, uh, I was at a house and it's a, basically it's a friend of mine and they're, they're renting this house and they went into their garage and um, there was one of those old Electrolux um, vacuum cleaners, the long sort of oblong ones. Mm -hmm. And and I said, well, you know, I was like, wow, I haven't seen one of those for a long time. They said, actually, this is the, the vacuum we use even today. We store it in the garage because of space. And I right. said, you still use it? And they said, turn it on. And I turned this vacuum on and it still had the suction, like it was a brand new vacuum cleaner. But what was really funny, it had a little counter at the back of it, like a little how many hours, and it had over 18,000 hours on it on this vacuum cleaner. Wow. <laughs> and it, it was, the vacuum was at least as old as I am. So, you know, over decades and decades of use, this vacuum still goes. And I was thinking, how many vacuums have I bought in the last five years? And I think probably on average, they last about a year. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not many that actually don't break down. Perhaps maybe I misuse them, I'm not sure, but it's like I had this constant churn of vacuum cleaners that stop being effective, you know, within a, a year or two, and you take them to get fixed and nobody knows how to fix them. Mm. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's a very big difference. And um, I think, you know, the way that throwaway commodity world, we have to move on from it. We have to get better at thinking about building, not, not building redundancy in, but almost doing the opposite. Yeah, that's right. I think the longer term perspective, which I think the word that I'm using more and more these days is stewardship or katiakitanga, 
thinking beyond, you know, just the immediate quarterly profit report, thinking in decades, in 100 years, what's, what it's going to be like. But I agree with you. The classic example to me is a printer. You know, you can, you can buy a brand new printer and it sometimes costs less than the ink for the printer. It's like it, it's made to be replaced. And, and um, yeah. Actually, just on the printer, actually, that's a really interesting one because we're a, we have a, um, a paperless environment, which was driven by my younger staff saying, do you have any idea how much waste is created by printers? Not just in the use of paper and printing and the ink, but the actual, you know, the physical printing machine, which have got built in redundancy. And, and, and they were saying, you know, you, you, you know as, as an organization that's responsible and thinking about environmental impact and thinking about the future, they were like, okay, from, you know, basically from today onwards, you, you, you know, you, you have to get rid of these printers and we have to make sure we're in the cloud so you don't need to print. And so now we do have one printer in the whole office, you know, so if you think about some, I don't know, on any given day, say 70 or 80 people sharing a single printer, and it would probably fire up maybe once every two weeks. Mm. Um, and I can hear it because it's in the office next to me. So it's a bit of a reminder how, how infrequent that we actually, you know, we use this printer now. Yeah. Well, we're going to get back to your life, but riffing off of that comment, <laughs> um, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when I look at the phone that I've got in my hand here, the other, the flip side of this is that, things can become so digital that we forget about having physical objects. And the thing I'm thinking of in particular here is, you know, I certainly remember 24 shots on a roll of film, 36 shots on a roll of film. Wow, that's a lot of photos. And getting the physical photos and having an album that you put the photos in. Whereas these days, it, it sometimes feels like I've got thousands of photos but I don't actually print them and I don't actually appreciate them in the same way that I used to when I had fewer photos, but they were like quite special and chosen and, and framed. A hundred percent. And I think interesting enough, one of my favorite apps on my phone is actually, it's a, it's a, a camera and actually it uses the, the lens on your phone, but you actually have to wind it. It has that old windy wheel to wind on for the next one and it only gives you 24 shots. Oh, it, really? just, it makes me think about what I take the image of and it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a gimmick, but actually it does take me back. And what's interesting is I actually worked in a photography developing uh, business when I was at high school. And I remember it in this, in, it was camera house and 24 photographs back then, this is in the mid eighties mm. was $19.95. Now, if you took 24 shots to today to get printed, you'd have them all printed for a few bucks. So it's one of those things that actually was so much more expensive. And I can remember the, the, the heartache when people would open up that, that envelope with their photographs and then they look in and, and realize they were overexposed or that great shot they thought they had of their grandfather was actually someone had their thumb over the lens or it was yeah. a, a light leakage or magenta was you know, overly saturating yeah. the image and colors, yeah. light streaks. And, and yet we still kept paying this ridiculous amount of money, which in, in today's dollars would be, you know, probably close to $200 mm. for 24 shots. And, and, and yet we keep taking these images with the hope that just a couple would be good enough that would put, make it into the album. I know. You would be happy if you had two or three that were standouts. You know, it's yeah. like, whoa, I got three really good ones. <laughs> yeah, and you think of that, you know, if, if they're using the $200 kind of, kind of um, comparison, you know, that's like a $40 shot for everyone that's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we had to love them. And, and actually, I actually am a great fan of giving people albums for gifts to even today. It's going through 
you know, a friends over a year, um, you know, on their birthday, I like to put together a you know album of photographs over the last year and put them into a physical album, give it to them. Just to- you would get on well with my wife because every year she's as a conscious decision, she's printed out a photo record of the of our family each year. Wow. You know, there's a little book and that's that's the year in photos. It's a wonderful, it's a big task because now there's thousands of photos to choose from, but it is a nice reminder to have a physical thing that you can do it. And my grandfather um, in the ni- early 1940s, he bought a video camera or a, a film camera, I guess. Right, right. And that's a pretty amazing thing. At the time, he was oh, really yeah. cutting edge of, you know, so I actually have some color film from the early 1940s that he shot and it's physical, you know, it's on the reels and things. But I sometimes worry with our storing things on computers and then the computer crashes and what happens to the photos, you know? And um, yeah, it's just interesting that physical things do have a place as well. I love that your kids will look for those albums in 20, 30, 50 years and tell the stories and tell their great grandchildren and it, it will be amazing. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've had lots of rabbit holes already, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> That's why I love the podcast though, because I love just to talk about ideas and things. But coming back to your childhood, can you describe a little bit about more about who you were as you're getting towards high school years and what type of things did you enjoy? Did you know you wanted to study a particular thing or yeah, set, set the scene for us. So, uh, I was painfully shy as a child, so unless I knew you, if you were sort of in my close circle, then great. But beyond that, um, if anybody went to primary school with me, who you know, saw this, they would be like, "Oh wow, you know, Francis was the really shy kid." Right. <laughs> and, and and I can see that even in my in, in my photographs, you know, sort of trying to shrink away into the background. And um, I'm tall. Now that's a really weird thing to state in the middle of a podcast, but actually, when you're shy and you're tall, and you're the tallest kid in the school. Uh, in a small school and you cannot hide. Um, in fact, I grew, I stopped growing when I was 11. And so, you know, I'm nearly six foot. So, it, it, you know, you, you suddenly can't hide anywhere. So, and my mother's always says to me that literally overnight, I, I sort of found a confidence with the height and realized that it wasn't necessarily a bad thing and that perhaps I could use it in a way that, I mean, I could pursue the things I'm really interested in. So. Um, I stayed in a small town that I grew up in until um, my year nine or third form year. Uh, and then I moved, moved to Auckland. And I actually went through five high schools. And the first thing people say when they hear that I went to five high schools, they always say, wow, you must have been really naughty. Uh, the assumption that every time you move, you move because you've been kicked out. Uh, the reality was it's nothing as interesting as that. But I was really curious. And uh, it's probably got me into trouble far too many times, but the curiosity has been a theme in my life. And I get realizing that you get choices to, to be around people who interest you or people who don't. And, and so I, I moved from a high school in Hawara to, uh, to Auckland and then did a few stints at different high schools in Auckland and then went to Australia for a while and then came back. And I think it was not driven by anything really apart from this idea that there's so much I wanted to see and do, even though I still wanted to do it within my own reasonably quiet world. It was like I, I had like an inner comfort, comfort just to keep pursuing interesting things. And actually that, that really became a real passion of mine. So I had some key kind of things I loved, which was one, art and photography. I love sociology. I love people watching. 
and I'm still an introvert, but I just can find my way through the world through this lens. And at 17, after finishing my sixth form or year 12, um, I decided that I had enough money in the bank to take me to London. So I jumped on a, on a one-way ticket to London. Strangely, uh, when my own children hit 17, each time I've gone, I have no idea how my parents let me go to London on a one-way ticket. Uh, <laughs> but it seemed like a totally normal thing to do. And, and so I had no idea what I was going to do, but it, it, but it was this idea that there's this huge world out there. And if I wanted to be able to see new things, I had to leave where I was. So that was like, jump on this plane and take this journey and just see what happens. It's interesting that you use the word curious because that's a word that I'm trying to use on the podcast a lot. And I will often, if, if people are listening, they'll hear me say, I'm just curious, dot, dot, dot. And then I'll ask the question. And what I'm trying to do with that is to frame the use of that word so that the listeners hopefully will also become more curious about the world. Because I agree with you. It's such a jump. It's a launching off point, isn't it? If, if you're curious, it, it will unlock so much more that you didn't know before. Yeah, it's like seeing things, even in your peripheral vision and saying, something's over there and I don't know what it is, but I'm just going to go and have a look. And, and I think that particularly when you're traveling, when you're on uncharted territory and you don't know where you're going, but you suddenly, something captures it. It could be a sound, a sight, a, a smell, a, and, you, and you follow to see where it goes. And suddenly you find yourself in, you know, an experience or a place or something of, you know, whatever sense it, it fulfills. It could be just admiration and beauty. It could be something that is quite disturbing. Sometimes it can be quite something that's kind of new, new to you and it's quite sort of confronting. Yeah. Um, but all of those are really part of that, you know, who you are because it starts to build all these parts of the sum of the person you become. Yeah. And, and so I really do like thinking about what, what else I can see and discover. Mm, that's great. It's a great attitude to have. It's something I'm trying to get my children to understand is that because if they can understand it at a young age, it's going to transform their experience going through school and whatever they choose to do. And in your situation, being 17, how, how was it that London was on your radar and that's where I'm going to go? Was it you'd had other people you knew who'd gone there or some connection family-wise or why was it London? <laughs> uh I wish I could answer that one with some kind of intelligence, but I didn't know anyone there. Obviously, I knew London, and it was a time when if you were doing your OE or your overseas experience, that you went there because it was the place where you get a two-year visa on arrival. Yep. And so that was a good enough reason for me. I'd already been to Australia and lived there when I was 16, but on my own. So it was sort of like the next place I could legally go and spend a bit of time. Mm. When I left, I knew I wouldn't be back within two years. It was like, a, I'm, I'm going... You know, I'm going to find the other side of the world. And so I went there, but actually it was probably not that long, maybe six to 12 months after I arrived, I knew that it wasn't going to be my long-term home. And then I actually moved to Turkey um, and that became my home for the longest time right. after that. So, and again, you can go, why, why Turkey? There was lots of amazing places I visited. And for some reason it just got under my skin and I kept finding interesting things every day and fascinating parts of the culture and the, the beauty of the landscape that just kept me there. Mm. Can I just, before we talk about that, just I'm thinking about your parents, you know, you're 16 and you're moving to Australia on your own. What was, what was their attitude? Or it sounds like they were quite open to that as a fly free, my daughter. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> like, how did it, how was that? Was there any sort of, well, maybe when you're older or, or yeah, any lessons we can learn from their approach? 
Well, I, yeah, I think it's 16. So actually my parents had split. So I was with, with living with my mum and um, Australia, I was actually still going to school. So I was actually went over and was part of like an exchange program. You know, most people had exchanges. They went to Argentina or somewhere really exotic. I got to Australia because it's all I could afford. So, um, so I was going to high school there and I ended up um, living with a few different families who sort of, I guess, billeted me. Um, and, that, and that in itself has some very interesting stories. Probably some of the most extraordinary life stories come back from those days where when you're moving into a family of people who have got completely different values than you or where their lifestyle or their beliefs are so different. Like I really was the first time I was confronted with people who fundamentally had sometimes no commonality to the things I believe to be true. And so um, that created lots of other new interesting things to pursue. And so I think at that time, I was level-headed. I think my, there was probably a big part of it is that my, my mother was of the view that I was unlikely to do something completely radical. Um, it probably helped that I was also tall, that I could stand my ground, that I, that I had enough, um, I guess, strength in my conviction of what was, you know, what was right and wrong, that I wasn't there looking for trouble. I was there to look and discover the world. And particularly through my, the lens of a camera, I was really fascinated by the, capturing it and, I would carry, typically carry two cameras, the good old 35mm cameras, a black and white film and a, and a colour film, right. and, and try to capture the world through through those lenses. And, and I think when, when I left, there was just this understanding that I was able to look after myself, that it, it wasn't going to be a bad thing. You know, this is the time before cell phones, before the internet. I certainly didn't have a credit card. You know, if things had turned pear-shaped, I had to have enough financial reserves that I had earned myself that would be able to get me back to safety. I don't think I ever had enough to get me back to New Zealand. That was probably a little more than uh, my reserves. That would have, you know, that was more of a save up and do that for a while, but at least it would have always got me back to someone I knew in some some form of safety if things turn pear shape. It's interesting though, because it, it's kind of, it sounds like from an early age, you were kind of on the edge or, you know, willing to explore and be on your own. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, because sometimes as parents, you can say, well, I, I think you should go to this university. And I think this is, you try to help your child through, but actually sometimes letting them fly is the best way. And, and in my own experience, I was 20 years old when I left New Zealand and I moved to Japan. And I was in Japan for a year, did not speak the language at that time you know, had like this much money, <laughs> very, it was a very different experience. But when I look back on it, that's, I think that was the catalyst for shaping me into the person I've become. And so I wouldn't trade it for anything, but uh, it certainly wasn't like a natural path. It wasn't like, well, this is, you should go to Japan for a year. That, that wasn't on the horizon. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think many of the best things that happen are planned. Mm. You know, I think sometimes when you really plan it, you forget the, the journey on the way there. Like if you're just thinking about that, that final destination, that holiday you're going on, actually, you know, I, I do think that sometimes there is so much in just in the everyday that can bring such great satisfaction and joy that when you finally do these, you know, things which are, you know, a little bit surprising or things that are bigger, you really take hold of, you know, of the accomplishment that it, that it has. Mm. You know, I think one of the today's in this sort of just instant gratification is we, we sort of lose this ability to, to enjoy those moments of just, you know, satisfaction. Like this is a good day and this cup of tea is a really great cup of tea. And I really enjoyed the conversation I had with someone down the hall. 
you know, I think that it's part of this anxiety I think a lot of people have is the expectation that every day has to be amazing. You know, every day is never amazing, but there can be amazing moments through every day. Mm. I like that a lot. I, I agree with you. And too often we live for a future when everything will have worked out. You know, that if we get this, if we do that, then then you can relax, then you can sit back and enjoy it. And then, but the reality is you'll have missed your life while you're on that journey, so. Yeah, the other thing with looking into the future, I think that's absolutely right, that people kind of think that, you know, oh, if, when I get to the stage where I earn more money or whatever it might be. And the flip side is people who have this fear of the future because they, they, they build this so much kind of routine into their lives and so much the sameness that actually the idea that breaking a day into something that looks different becomes paralyzing or the fear of the future. When we, when we talk about technology, often you know, people go immediately into kind of the cyber wars and the Terminator and it's like AI taking over. And, and actually when you, when you know it, the more you know, you more, the more you understand how you know, ridiculous that really is. Mm -hmm. But again, you have to understand the information between what you don't know and the actual truth. But if you go straight to an sort of a tidal inkling of something you heard or a bit on social media, then actually that becomes overwhelming because in absence of true information, you, you, you can see things through a very negative lens. Yeah. And so it's, you know, trying to fill as many gaps as you can in the, in the knowledge journey as well. Yeah, no, that's good. So how long did you stay in Turkey for? Well, I, I was there the first time uh, the first Gulf War broke out and I didn't actually know there was a war going on because I was only really reliant on uh, media that I heard. Um, there wasn't local papers. There was no English papers where I lived. And so actually, eventually I had a family, I must have maybe a birthday or something. And I rang home and they said, you know, like everybody's worried you're in the middle of a war zone. And I was like, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it, and the perception was that because the Middle East was in, in turmoil and that in the in Izmir, one of the cities in Turkey where the US military base was to basically to, to fight within the Middle East was only four hours away from where I lived, that actually somehow that was really close to me. And of course, it, the reality was not impacting me at all until the day when the British consulate rang me who looked after New Zealanders and said, actually, you need to leave the country. You know, this is no longer a place to be. Right. So I did come home um, for a while, which which is kind of interesting when you didn't really, well, I didn't feel like my time was done. And, and in fact, it was probably the first thing that I recall being said to me by my family when I came back was sort of like, we know you're not ready to come home. And I was like, yeah, but I'll stay until I'm able to go back. And so, um, and again, that was great sort of, re, sort of regrouping back home, really appreciating New Zealand again, and then and then sort of taking off in, into, into new lands and new opportunities that um, it was always for me. And, and that, that, that continues. Even, even this, like this week, maybe two days ago on Monday, I was talking to one of my, one of my staff here and she was saying, oh, are, you, are you missing traveling? You know, I know you love to travel and, and in the context of COVID. And I said, no, actually, I've really enjoyed not traveling. I've actually traveled less in the last year and a half than I've ever not traveled. This is, this is right. extraordinary. But I've actually learned to appreciate other things that I you know, haven't had the chance to do in New Zealand. And, and she said to me, where was the last place you went? And I said, well, it was in July last year. And um, I took uh, my, my two sons and one of their girlfriends to Borneo. And, and she was like, where's Borneo? And, and, you know, you have those moments, you think, gosh, you know, and she's a smart, she's got a master's qualification, a wonderful woman, but she, you know, travel and that curiosity is not part of, you know, her DNA. She's got lots of other really rich experience in her life, but, you know, for me, sort of geography and knowing about cultures and 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 
and different worlds was really interesting. And so she said, well, where did you go the time before? And she said, I said, what you mean in 20, 2018 it would have been? And I said, oh, I went to Oman. And she said, oh, did your family enjoy that? And I said, no, I went by myself. <laughs> and, and again, that was like, but how, how does that work? You know, so, you know, I think that we, you know, we, we all have our journeys and neither one is good or bad or right or wrong. It's like we just have to follow what, what it says in our heart about what makes us, you know, what, what fascinates us and what, what makes us feel kind of part of this exciting world. And it comes back to that word curiosity, isn't it? And, it and allowing yourself to follow the things that you're curious about. Because like you say, some people wouldn't be that interested in why would you go to Oman? <laughs> you know, whereas for you, clearly it's a big part of you is you want to see and explore and, and be a part of other cultures as well. Yeah, and I think that people who do travel a lot, and I know some people are much more intrepid than I will ever be, but I love the idea when you wake up in the morning and the room you're in is unfamiliar. The food you know you're going to eat is completely unfamiliar. The, the language is something you've never heard. The music, the laughter, everything feels different. And there's something about that that makes my senses just feel absolutely alive because it, all of them are, are, you know, are all kind of like zapping with this, what is this? What does this mean? And, and then there's that, you know, that fun of trying to make common, you know, find a common language which you know sometimes can be disastrous and sometimes can be you know incredibly rewarding as you sort of go through the process of you know just of traveling through uncharted territory yeah. and, and and actually it's quite hard to do today because you know, obviously the the population with seven and a half billion people in the world there's not often you can go somewhere that's still quiet and um, and in fact in 2018 when I went to Oman um, the my idea was to travel right across and and I did uh, have a driver because it's a big country and, but it was in the middle of Ramadan. So everybody was fasting. So no, nobody goes out, all the shops are closed, everything. And so we would drive for hours and hours and would drive through towns and they would be completely empty. And I'd go to where I'd stay at night. And if it was a hotel, it would be completely empty. Like there was like a, we, what, you know, they'd sort of give me a menu from the hotel and say, you know, a huge menu. And they'd say, you can have one, this one or this one. Because <laughs> if, we'll just stay to make your meal and we'll bring it to your room. But actually that in itself was quite amazing because everywhere I went, these incredible sites mm. that normally would have thousands of people, they were just completely empty. It was probably also helped it was 45 degrees. So people you know, typically don't want to travel in that heat. But I remember there was, a, there's a very, very famous turtle beach there where the, the turtles come up onto the beach. These huge, you know, these are massive, massive turtles that, you know, four people could sit on top of, lay their eggs under moonlight, and then they go back into the ocean. And if you go a certain time of year, you get to see it. And I was there. And I remember going and sitting at sort of three in the morning with just this very dimmed light with a guide sitting on the beach watching these huge turtles come up on the beach. You know, and all you hear is the, the water and, and the lapping of the water and things, and there's just the moonlight. And, and you've got this very dim lights and they can't see it. And you just, you, you, you literally can't explain that feeling of being somewhere where you're so far away from everybody you know, and you feel so comfortable and so privileged that you get to see this. And I just hope, you know, others, even maybe people listening to this will just think, you know what, there are those things I've always wanted to do and I haven't done, because that reward is just, spectacular you know it's it's not about going to a tropical holiday and lying on the beach and drinking pina coladas it's about putting yourself in those positions where 
you're unfamiliar, but they are so rewarding. Mm. That's really good. How would you describe to, for people who haven't had that experience, how would you describe it, what it does for you in your mind or in your soul or however you want to describe it? Um, what is it that it gives you? I'm guessing it's energy and, and you feel alive, but how would you paint that picture for people? I, look, I think it's, people know that feeling of endorphins. You know, I, some people get it when, well, I think we all get it if you've got children, when you see your children do great things that they're so proud of. And they could be, you know, running a race or they've done a beautiful piece of art or playing a piece of piano, you know, music or, or just accomplishing something they haven't done before. You know, that feeling you get, that warm, just, love for what they're doing and you just suddenly in that moment you just have the sense that the, nothing in the world could bother you and I think we do know that feeling it just um, people get it for different things but sometimes we you don't have that for a long time if your world becomes quite small and, and it becomes repetitive it's you don't have those sort of spark, sort of sparks I guess or, or peaks where you go that feeling and it's the same reason people run you know extreme distances and things where they want to get that endorphins kicking in but don't have that that particular gene set unfortunately they want to go running to get it um but certainly that feeling when you see an old friend who you haven't seen for a while and they're just that sense of warmth and love and connection and just the, the exhilaration of life that you go wow and and you know and i i guess for me i i see it sometimes through a camera lens Sometimes I see it by something that I've tried to eat for the first time. It's just this incredible taste or maybe a special glass of wine, or it could just be, you know, where, where you suddenly discover something. And I think the only way I could describe it is, is whatever it is in your life that gives you that, you know, those thrills where you just feel like, wow, this is a good day. Yeah, that's really good. I think for me, the picture that I, that has resonated with me is the idea of a bell. So if you have a bell and you put it on the desk, and you strike it, it will not make a sound. But if you lift it up and you strike it, and it will nice. make a sound. And I like that. that you know that. I'm feeling that one. <laughs> oh, go for it. <laughs> but it's actually a really good picture. If you get a bell and you, you know, if you want to illustrate the concept, you know, actually take a bell and, but that sound that comes, you know, that it's fully alive, it's fully present. And mm -hmm. that sound is then going out into the world. And in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about is to strive for those sorts of things that that cause you to be like that bell to be struck and to resonate and to have the sound coming out no that's beautiful i really like that yeah so back to your life and um coming back to new zealand did you have a moment when you thought okay it's time to come back or or what what happened next uh look i i, I don't know there was a particular moment um it's interesting because my because my mother was young, I was living overseas. She came over and celebrated with me, and we travelled together for a while. And I remember she had to get back because it was going to be her fortieth birthday, which was quite funny now when I think about, <laughs> about that. that um, so travelling with her was, I think, part of it. You know, like I really did miss home, and I wanted that. But I, it wasn't a particular event or something that made me come home. But when when I did. Um, you know, I just saw it almost as a landing place that, you know, I then, I then started traveling from New Zealand instead of, of being based in, on, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, I've always, you know, like, like anybody who lives in New Zealand, it's a privilege. So it was never, never a bad thing to come home. Mm. But, 
and, and actually, and I have been home, you know, New Zealand's been my home now for, for a long time. I mean, and, and so I, you know, I think, you know, it is, I, I always look around my team, for example, when it's such an international team, and I think all these people have made an effort and real sacrifices to live here. Like they've left family and loved ones to, you know, forge their way in New Zealand. And, and in return, they get to be in this country that in some ways, you know, it is utopian. I mean, it's got, a, it's got so many good things about it that most countries will never achieve. And, and I do feel very fortunate that actually this is, this is a country that we should never take for granted. And, and part of that we've seen even through COVID with our, our, our connection as a collective, you know, our view that we want to look after each other, even if we don't know each other, we haven't, we don't have the, we don't fight for our rights as individuals, which we've seen in other markets, and particularly in the US, where, you know, it's it's all about the individual and their individual rights. You know, we we understand that we are part of an ecosystem, and and everybody gets affected if something if someone lets down the team, and you know, without sounding all political, it's just understanding there is a compliance that comes with living in a community, and you know, and 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 it doesn't matter if they are. Fano, who you live with, or they're part of a community in a small town, or they're a whole country. You know, you're, there's a responsibility that comes from the ground and the earth, and and thinking about the regeneration of 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 you know, the environment right through to, you know, if we're building facilities and infrastructure for to support, you know, people to travel or to learn or to get well, that actually all of that's part of our own responsibility as part of us. Not, we're not, you know, there isn't an entitlement that any of us have to say, hey, you you, you know. You take everything you have for granted because actually it's you can't take anything for granted yeah and no, i agree completely i often say this but you know forget about your business card and the title that's written there um it doesn't matter <laughs> you know it, it's more about you are a leader no matter what your business card says you're the leader of at least one person which is you Mm-hmm. And that, that responsibility to lead yourself well will then flow into other opportunities. But it starts with yourself. And if you can approach every situation with how can I add value, how can I make this better, then you'll be welcome in any team anywhere, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think to that point, I mean, we have one of our programs here um, that we teach and which is, you know, part of my 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 journey is, is being involved with education, um, is as a as a postgraduate program and leading change for good. And one of the things we we ask students to think about on day one is think about this idea of I am me. And if you were to introduce yourself to a stranger, how do you do that without saying that you are a parent or your job? So take away this idea that those, those things are, you know, husband, wife, mother, you know, you know, whatever your job is, and talk about the things that you are. You know, I'm a person who's passionate about design and, and good food, and I'm passionate about community, and I love animals, and, you know, of course, you can talk about your lovely kids and things too, but but it's, it's actually saying, but actually this, it's this idea that you're, first of all, your job, you know, how many people introduce themselves, oh, I, I work for, or I'm, you know, I'm a banker, or whatever it might be, and it becomes our default that these these things define us. And I think it is it's really great to be able to stop and say, who am I if I was not that? Because they can be taken away. And and we know in, in a year like this year, when you know, people, really good talented people have lost jobs and and sectors have have you know gone astray. That that doesn't define anybody. It gives you a chance to to regather and think about who you are again. But but actually, you've changed in a good way. That actually, you've learned something 
you've you've got great memories and now it's a chance to to do something different yeah i completely agree i, I just inter interviewed someone named jesse cross who started an initiative called the not so redundant club for no. people who have lost their positions their titles their jobs mm -hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about was the fact that redundancy is such an awful term to use about people. And yet, you know, I've been made redundant. What is that? If you break down what the word redundant means, it's about oh, you we think don't of it that anymore. Way. it's no longer able to be used. And that's not at all the way we should be conceiving it. In fact, that, that losing a position, which is, you know, the business card title and things, perhaps it will unlock that person to pursue the curiosity and, and find something that really resonates so that they can, you know, go in a different direction. And Stephen, one of the things I talk to a lot of mature adults about this whole area, you know, I, hear, I talk to people, all, all of our students here are full-time employees full-time and they study part-time. Mm. And the number of them who say, I'm actually waiting to be made redundant. And I pick them up on this and say, why in the earth would you wait to be made redundant? Mm. And they said, well, I know that there's a big restructures going on. So I'm going to be basically the last man standing or last woman standing. And then I'm, I'm going to negotiate the best deal. And I said, well, why don't you turn it around? Like everybody knows, you know, when they, when they hit their kind of natural end point within a role, it could be that there's nowhere else to go. You've done everything you possibly can. You've stopped your learning edge has been hit. At that point, that is the best time to go to your employer and say, hey, I've done this amount of time, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, it's time for me to move on. You know, what can you do to help me transition into this next phase? Right. Now, if you've been a good employee, most employers will say, right, well, can, let's, let's, let's plan it. Is this a, you know, you want to be gone in a month? You want to be gone in two months? You want to be gone in six months? What is it? Well, let's work. How, you know, what kind of work? Who can we help you? You know, it's amazing how how forward employers will be about supporting people when they, when they've sort of said, I think you've got, you know, you've got the full me you're going to get yeah. and actually be really proactive about that and actually make that choice. And it, it could also agree in, in terms of, it, it could also involve having some form of payment, you know, and again, a good employer probably will find, you know, a payment of some form, but this idea of waiting to be made redundant, you know, it just like to your point is such a negative connotation and, and to carry that and thinking you know my use by date I'm just going to define it by when my employer tells me I'm no longer needed mm. um, has to be you know one of the most kind of sad things I think we could possibly do as humans yeah well I think the but then taking the other perspective you, you can understand it in terms of security the incomes coming in so that's why people would naturally not want to be proactive maybe but I, I completely agree with you if you can be proactive from from my perspective, I was working in an international law firm and, and you know, working multinational deals. It was really exciting. I enjoyed it. But at some point, I realized this isn't where I want to be in terms of the country. I was in Sydney at that time. And so I did go to the employer. But part of it was feeling like the amount that I was being paid and things was almost like handcuffs. Like yeah. I was tied. They were paying me in gold, but it was in the shape of golden handcuffs. And, you know, realizing that I had to actually be a bit, be willing to uh, step into the unknown and not have that security there as well and, and go into something slightly different and, you know, do what I do today, which is more impact-driven legal work. 
out. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. yeah it's funny. I, um, a year ago, we were doing some executive training for um, leaders inside a bank. And they were all talking about the same thing about, you know, that they, they're paid so well within those environments and these corporate offices that it's really hard to leave to go into things that are for impact or, you know, more kind of sort of purpose led. And, and so I said to them, well, would you consider doing a four day week so that you've got time to start, start exploring and I said, yeah, but then you'd need to take a 20% pay cut. And so, you know, I put it back to saying, okay, so you say, let's just say on round terms, you're on hundred thousand dollars. So you're saying you can't live on $80,000. And they're like, no, I can't. I said, okay, so take the tax off that. Tell me what is going to change in your life. So substantial. You cannot give away one day a week. So you get a three day weekend, which means you can start to find the things that give you that purpose. And, and so you may be transitioning and I'm yet to find a single person who's prepared to give away 20% of their salary for a four-day week, even though they know that the, the five-day week is literally killing them because of the mental anxiety and the, the heavy lifting mentally they have to do every day so they're exhausted by the weekend. And so this is this idea that, that money, well, and why $20,000 is a lot of money, again, if you take off the 30% for tax, whatever it might be, actually, yes, it buys you things, but what would time give you that money can't give you? And, and I think that this is it where people do follow these um, jobs where, where people pay really well in a job over, over the market norm by comparison to not-for-profit, social enterprise, for, you know, for purpose. It's because they want to keep you. <laughs> There's a reason for it. They, you know, they know that it's going to be a hard sell if they were to pay a lot less. And so there is a trade-off. And a trade-off sometimes comes at the cost of people's lives and health and um, you know, some of the things that are sacrificed in that process of just chasing dollars. And so, yeah. you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, we're kind of agreeing with each other a lot, but maybe we're talking to similar people and seeing similar situations. The thing that I find helpful to ask people or to mention, so I'll mention it in case I'm sure you do this as well, but to ask the question, when you're 95 years old and you look back on your life, what will you regret? And if the answer is, well, why did I continue for the next five or 10 years in that particular position that I knew wasn't where I wanted to be, then forget about the money. The, the zeros really don't matter. You know, you really need to evaluate so that you at the end of life, which happens to all of us, <laughs> can look back with satisfaction that you actually lived in a purposeful and meaningful way. Like it's a really good way of framing it. And I think you know, and or, or you know, uh, you know, we all hope to be able to live to ninety-five and be be healthy into that stage. But actually, we know not, not all of us will have that that luxury. And so, you know, I don't think anybody on their deathbed, no matter what age they are, would wish they worked more, yeah. or worked for something that they didn't really feel particularly passionate about. Yeah. Well, I get the sense that you do feel passionate about what you're doing, and I'd love to turn and find a little bit more about MindLab and Tech Futures, and um, how did that? How did those initiatives come about? And um, just take us through maybe arriving back in New Zealand and what you got involved in and, and how it's led to what you do today. Well, there's, there's, there's a few years in between, but if I go back uh, 22 years ago, uh, 1998, um, I co-founded um, Media Design School, which was a really interesting time because it was when the world was turning from analog to digital. And, um, and actually... Interesting enough, so I, I, I've always had this passion for technology. So technology has been this 
sort of one of those things that for me has enabled really interesting things to be achieved. And so I've never been fearful of it. And I've sort of tried to bring together that creative passion of mine, which continues with this technology aspect. And when Media Design School was formed, it was in the world of multimedia. You know, this is when we were doing, working with things like CD-ROMs in the very early stages of the internet when, you know, you, you could just start to have some slight moving interactions on a website. And, yeah. and pretty much everybody who was doing web development was a complete cowboy because everyone was self-taught. There was nothing at all that you could learn formally. There was no, the internet certainly didn't stream media. You couldn't watch a YouTube, you know, a YouTube channel. It didn't exist. And I actually it, remember, sorry to interrupt you, but I remember it was around then, that time that I got my first website. I think it was like 1999 and I tried to learn HTML coding, you know, in the little brackets and yeah and the little break brackets and then the big thing i think was like flashing words you know that was kind of like wow it's so interactive <laughs> it's funny to think back now yeah okay. and look i think it's um in fact one of my colleagues here just started working for me we, we worked out that we worked together 26 years ago on a project where i was actually at auckland zoo another story but um i did a cd-rom card which was so radical like this idea like a little card that you could slip into your CD-ROM drawer, which we had monkeys on it, which the monkeys moved. And we were trying to remember how many kilobytes of space this little disc had. Right. Kilobytes, not megabytes, not gigabytes, not, you know, we're talking about, you know, it just this tiny kilobytes and what we could do even back then. So, you know, <laughs> the technology is crazy. How, and, and even, so even when we started school, it was still, um, floppy disks and, and, and zip disks and jazz disks and bromides and things that most people probably listen to this are going to go, what in the earth is she talking about? Uh, what are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, CD-ROMs even now, I think are you know, pretty funny for most people. Uh, and in fact, a funny story a couple of years ago, literally a couple of years ago, I was in down, down somewhere else in New Zealand and I was talking to a, a group of 10 or 11 year olds and I said an, um, an iPod, and this, this young girl in the front of the room, she's like, oh, oh miss, miss, miss. And I was like, and she goes, um, she said, I, I don't think you meant iPod. There's no such thing as an iPod. It's called an iPad. <laughs> and I realized that, you know, this 10 year old, a couple of years ago, had never heard of it because, of course, it, it was redundant technology. Right. And long gone, like, iPods have been replaced with, you know, phones. And, and so everybody listens to the music. If they, if they have it, they put it on their phone. They didn't need to carry around. Well, they were very helpful to help you understand. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah. but, it, but it, in, the, in those uh, early days um, at Media Design School it was all around uh, multimedia and then the film industry sort of heated up here so suddenly a knock at the door uh, Weta were um, about to start this, this uh, trilogy it was called Lord of the Rings have you heard of it? Right. <laughs> yeah. and, and they were actually so amazing that like most viewers I tried out for it you know. <laughs> oh, you did? oh, I didn't do that, funny enough, and yeah, yeah. I was quite connected in. Um, that's right, even the Prime Minister, I think, said she, was, she tried out. So <laughs> um, They had the open casting call, so you just showed up, and they took your measurements, you gave them your name and number, but I don't know why I didn't get the call back. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there was um, this whole industry that was opening, and it was, you know, digital and visual effects, and it was all very exciting. Um, and actually, they had no pathways from New Zealand. So New Zealanders back then could not get a job because there was absolutely no capability built in New Zealand. So everybody in that crew was imported for the, um, particularly for the first one. Mm. And so um, 
so certainly my, my really my favorite areas of in my sort of hobbies between technology and, and creative fields came, you know, just colliding together. And it was this great, exciting time of developing um, young talent or even not so young, lots of, you know, mature adults changing careers as well, but fundamentally young people thinking about these new world. And, and it was, it started off with uh, multimedia and then that became new media. And then we had, then we had, 3D animation, and then we moved into game development and visual effects. And there was a, there was even a time before the, the, the bust of the e-commerce world, we did e-commerce, you know, early, early e-commerce. Uh, I think that might have been maybe around 1999 or 2000. Um, you know, so I was suddenly propelled forward into this world that was emerging at the absolute forefront of the creative sector. Mm-hmm. And I was in hook, line, and sinker. I just love this idea that, you know, this technology could interpret as a tool, could take this creative ability from people who could draw or imagine things and just create these outputs. And, you know, when, when you walk into, you know, high-end visual effects artists, you know, look at their screen, you're just looking at it going, wow, like this is amazing. This comes out of your brain and you can put it on this and create it in, in this, these tools. And, and so, um, that was really a, a big, you know, a big part of my life, right, all the way through to 2013. So um, for those 15 years, so you know, a, a big chunk. And had I had a couple of children at that time, and who are now in their 20s, and um, and just, you know, it it was just fabulous. I mean, it was really for me just suddenly this realization that education, which is something I'd never done, I hadn't been to university, um, was this incredible. Uh, just incredible catalyst of taking people who had an interest and turning them into these artists or people who were copywriters or people who were game developers who, or who could write stories and, and actually just watching this happen in front of my eyes because most of our programs, particularly in the early days, were a year long. So it wasn't like they were there for years with us and watching them you know, kind of create over time. They were like in and... You know, we, we would open the doors early and we would kick people out late at night saying, hey, look, you know, it's 10 o'clock, you need to go. And, I, you know, I think if we put beds into the school, people would have just catnapped and carried on because it was just, it was like this revolution was happening of digitization. And, and it was almost, you know, it was like a, almost a secret club of these people who understood that the world was about to become totally technology-based. Mm. Um, and this is 20 years ago, you know, so... And then, you know, as they say, is that, you know, you get, you get when, you, when you see something transforming in front of your eyes and you see the impact in a positive way that it's having, it would be really hard not to kind of get absolutely caught up in that. Yeah. And so um, when I started the Mind Lab in 2013, which is our seventh anniversary, my children were uh, at high school and they were, had never, ever had a computer at school, like no laptops, nothing that literally had worked and everything was analog. And, and I was looking at how we worked in the office and what we were doing. And, and I was looking at them. I think, I think actually my youngest son might've been maybe 13 at the time. And he didn't know a single thing about technology. And yet I keep hearing that people saying, Oh, there's this whole generation coming and they're really technical and they really love their technology. And I was thinking, well, well, when are they going to learn it? Because so far their schooling looks like my schooling. Right. It looks like the same school that I went to. Mm. And so it was a, a really weird um, 
a bit of an epiphany. I, I was in, um, I think in France with, with my family traveling and I saw a sign and it had, it said something like Le Lab. And I was like, I wonder what that is. And then I started, is it masculine or feminine? What's a lab? And, you know, it was this really weird thing. And I started writing these ideas about what would a lab look like if a, if a classroom became a lab and you could be really curious and you could experiment and you could innovate and you could create, what would that look like? And by the time I came back from this holiday with my kids, um, I'd registered the company. You know, the mind lab was, was suddenly a thing. Mm. Um, so I left my role at Media Design School. I was a CEO there and I left that. And um, it had sold in, in, in the few years earlier. So I'd just been working there under a different ownership. Mm-hmm. And um, I started this, this facility, which was actually designed for children. It, was, it wasn't where I am now, which is teaching adults. It was, it was all for children. And um, it was a phenomenal time because we focused on age seven to 12. Schools came in every day. The whole place was full of school kids having classes like they've never had before, learning about robotics and visual effects and coding and, and, and doing stop motion and making movies. And so the teachers would come in with them and they'd bring 30 kids in and, and there was no instruction seat, sheets. There was no whiteboards or anything. There were no rules. It was just like, here, here's the problem. We need to make a stop motion movie. And it's, you know, we've got a whole lot of boxes full of stuff, but we don't know what the story is. So the story's in these boxes and the people, you know, these kids would go, oh, so do I need to find the book inside the boxes? And we'd be like, no, the story's in the objects in the boxes. And they're like, so we can make any story. And we're like, you make your story. And then you'd watch these kids who just, their eyes would wide open and just this idea that they could work together. And kids naturally collaborate. They kind of go self-forming teams. I want you, you, and you, and we can come together. And someone's sort of like, hey, I've got this idea. And other one's like, yeah, but we could add this. And someone like, hey, what I could do is I could write beautiful artwork and draw stuff and add to this. So it, it was like this, suddenly this really lovely evolution from having pe- teaching people how to use the high-end tools and going into the industry to suddenly teaching kids who were discovering the tools for the first time. And it really started from there. It's interesting uh, as well. I'm just thinking and reflecting back on your own life and remembering your father. And he opened up his tools and said, go create something, go make things. In a way, it's kind of a nice echo back to your own childhood and the opportunities and the curiosity that that instilled in you that clearly has played a big part through your entire life, that this is kind of an echo back of what you were learning and now being able to teach other children. Yeah, and I think, and I have reflected on, you know, why it is that I really believe that, you know, there are rules that are made to be broken. And, and actually in education, I'm seen as a bit of a hustler and a bit of a hacker of the system because I think so much of education is about following the rules. Mm. And actually nobody learns by following rules because actually the whole rote learning was dismissed as a, as a methodology for impact learning years ago. It's a very short-term game. Mm. You know, you pass the exam, woohoo, you've done it. But actually there's no real learning. You know, there's only a memorization. And so when I, when I was thinking about... What I, how I learned when I was young, it was by doing and discovering, and, it, and as an adult as well. And so I did subliminally, but only after reflection, I said, I'm trying to recreate this idea of discovery and curiosity in the lab. Mm. And, sort of, and sometimes um, 
you know, I had parents and teachers sort of like, whoa, but hang on, you need to give us instructions. The kids need them. And the kids were like, no, we don't need instructions. We got it. <laughs> and, uh, and in fact, it was quite funny. Quite early on, one of, my, one of my team, great guy, he said to me, we have a problem. We have these parents who like hover and want to show the kids what to do and take over. And so we were like, um, what do we do about it? Because we don't want to be rude, but actually they're, they're kind of interfering with this whole process of discovery. And so we created the back off beer. So at the beginning of a class, we had this like soft toy beer and we'd say like, this is back off beer. And it's designed so when parents get overly excited or teachers get overly kind of concerned about who's doing exactly, you know, in a particular way, we'll just wave the beer at you and, and don't be offended, but back off. And, you know, we'd probably use it in every class, be like, woohoo, here's the little bear. And, the, and they'd be like, oh, sorry. Uh, and then back <laughs> off again. And, you know, it's that natural thing to want to do it for children. I'll, I'll show you how. It's like actually the kids were really able to do it. And, and I think that's one of the big learnings I had. And I wasn't an educator. I, you know, this is all from just life experience at this point. I, I did actually finally go and get qualified and, and do study education um, when I had 40. I went and did a master's. But, um, but that, that was another story. But, but it was really um, about this idea that I was learning education through the eyes of children when I first started with education. So I'd been teaching adults technology in media design school for years and years and years. That all, but that was for me, it was all around just, you know, giving, giving people with talent the ability to use the tools of the time. When you start teaching kids, you suddenly realize the process of learning. You understand what it means to suddenly be given new information and what people do with it. And I suddenly got this, wow, this is power. Like you literally get the sieves of minds like, yes, let's do this. It's really fascinating to me because I interview a lot of people for this podcast. And one of the people is um, Esther Whitehead, who's from the Dyslexia Foundation. And we were talking about the concept of neurodiversity yeah. and the fact that many people learn in different ways and that that's okay. <laughs> and that the, the standard way of learning or the traditional way, which is, you know, here's the facts and the figures and here's the things to memorize, just doesn't work for, for many people. And, and so having the opportunity to learn in different ways and to engage in different ways, I can see where it would be, yeah, quite a challenge to the existing paradigm of thinking. Yeah, and actually, um, one of my actually just adored staff here, he's neurodiverse and, and he's got ADHD, very, very open about it. In fact, every session he takes. So he is working with master's students, you know, these are professionals. And the day one he meets them, he's like, hey, this is me, I'm neurodiverse, these are the things, the way I work, and this is what I can't do, and this is what, you know, I sometimes do these weird things and explains what he does and how he processes ideas. And then and every time there'll be like three or four people in the class, we're like, so am I, so am I, so is my kid. You know, like, and, and you realize how actually there's so many people who learn in very different ways. And yeah. we never assume the way we learn is how others learn. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing to pick up on is just that, you know, the adults are in the room wanting to teach the children or, or like a relationship of hierarchy and power, if you want to frame it in that way. Yeah. Um, my daughter did a talk, a TEDx youth talk, and her topic was what can adults learn from children? Lovely. The opening lovely. thing was, you know, many of you have studied for years and years and years, but my question to you is, when was the last time that you climbed a tree? Mm -hmm. And so from a child's perspective, from a, you know, a young person's perspective, to be curious, to be open to, to trying different things, to climbing a tree, 
you know, we kind of forget that we get a bit too serious and we're worried about mortgages and all these other things. And, but there's incredible wealth that, that children have in their experience that, that we could probably learn from as well. Right. Yeah. Actually the, the very first um, week when I opened the mind lab seven years ago was at the school holidays and we, we decided we'd run a school holiday program and we, we did run a school holiday programs actually, you know, all the way through to when COVID hit. And what I hadn't appreciated when you, when you run a school holiday program and you offer it a week before it starts, the only kids who you typically get are the kids who have been either kicked out of other programs and not allowed back, or where you have parents who uh, really haven't figured out what they want to do at the last minute. Mm. So day one of the school holiday program, we had the most diverse group of kids you could possibly imagine. And I'm talking about the most delightful, you know, dyslexic kids. We had ADHD kids. We had kids with Asperger's. We had, you know, we had people who were autistic. We had kids, like, for me, it was sort of like this, the most eye-opening week of my life because we were there, had this group of people who were teachers, and we were just saying, like, wow, this, this group literally are challenging all of us in so many different ways. Mm. But they were one of the most delightful weeks of my life because I learned more in that week from this group of kids because for them it was the first time they were learning in a way that made sense to them and their parents were coming to pick them up at the end of the day and they'd come back the next day and saying, you have no idea the difference you're making in their lives because this is the first time they've been able to learn and create in a, in a way that's not controlled. And I, and I remember at the end of that week, all the staff, we were all new together. We'd only been working together about six weeks. We sat there and just reflected. We still know the names of all those kids seven years on. Wow. They made a massive impact. And uh, I really hope now that they're, you know, they're 20 years old, I hope they're doing great things because yeah. they were really impactful. That's great. Well, it just shows the power of, um, you know, being willing to listen to others and do things a little bit differently. Now, you've also got the um, Tech Futures Lab, and, and can you tell us a little bit about that? How is, what is that up to? <laughs> yeah, so Tech Futures, we launched um, four and a half years ago, and actually that was really more a, a, around people who are in professional careers, but understood that the knowledge they had was really um, limited to this more analog world or to a time when they studied and things had moved on. And so basically... Our students there are studying things like connected environments around things like IoT and, and smart devices and sensors, or they might be looking at artificial intelligence machine learning. So these are really pointy kind of a master of technological futures or um, a postgraduate certificate in a human potential in the digital economy. You know, these are really interesting, big, broad themes um, bringing people in together. And, and so it operates in the same facility as the Mind Lab. So the Mind Lab is all around people who work in the not-for-profit health, education, social development, uh, charitable iwi areas. So they're, they're, what they do is, is for a purpose and it's driven not by profit. And Tech Futures is typically people who are in the for-profit world, but they're trying to find a way out. They're trying to find the bigger purpose. They're trying to find that thing that's going to take them and, and create a legacy that they're really proud of. And so they, they are a little harder to work with in some ways because they're so programmed into routines and, and, and actually hierarchies and, and structures and being right, being the expert in the room and suddenly they're thrown into this room where they're surrounded by people who are also, you know, equally and, and bright and intelligent, but 
there's no expert in the room because they're all learning for the first time for many of them learning for the first time in decades so great it's great to have both sides and and uh, and there is commonality in the sort of age and stage of us students but actually the differences between people who have always worked in roles that have a particular a social outcome or a purpose versus those who have worked in a for-profit coming to discover what they are when they're not you know a, a, in the c-suite or they're not a manager trying to figure out what that looks like uh, it's it's wonderful it's a real privilege that's really good um i think one of the guests that i interviewed john berry um, he's, he's wonderful. John doesn't work with us. He's so great. Yeah, he is, isn't he? And I think that the interview that I did with him has been shared, I think, among some of the classes or the students. He was telling me that people had listened to it because they'd gone to the course. And then because in that interview, we talked basically about his his life journey, like we're doing with you. And the fact that he used to work in sort of corporate worlds, you know, and then he's shifted quite a lot, as you know, into what he does today. And, and yeah, actually, many of the people on the podcast have gone through some sort of a journey or a shift from an old way of thinking towards a sort of new conception of where they fit in the world. So, yeah, it's, it's really... Everyone, everyone should do it. Like, I really wish I could get that to people. It's like, actually, this, there is so much to, to learn out there. If you, if you give yourself the permission to not want it to be perfect, you know, yeah. just, just step into that little bit of, a, yeah, little bit of the unknown, you know, fake it till you make it. If you have to put on the brave face, but actually there's so much that can come from breaking away from the routine of what you've done for a long time. Yeah. So how do we, how, how, how can people access this or what would be the avenue if they're interested in exploring more? I'm assuming we can put a link to the website and things and people can click through and find it, but would you encourage people? Yeah. Is it, is the course, um, how long does it go for? You know, just some basics like that. Okay, sure. LinkedIn, find me that way. But actually the, the URLs for both the organizations, so the Mind Lab is the mindlab one word.com and Tech Futures Labs likewise, techfutureslab one word.com. Um, and our programs vary. We have short courses which are non-credentialed things around uh, things like product management and and just really interesting short courses. There's also a short course for young people aged 18 to 22 called Hey Future thinking about what they should be doing and following, following their passions. Mm -hmm. We also have micro-credentials, which are short little bite-sized programs. And then we go all the way through to master's. So look, have a look at the sites, but by all means reach out to me. Um, I'm pretty good at getting back um, the LinkedIn messages. So please do that. And um, love to hear from anyone who, particularly if, if there's something where, you know, you just want some encouragement to, to go follow that dream. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, we will put it, it, the podcast, we can put links to things in the show notes so people can then find it and click through and, and explore. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. And we've talked a long time, actually. And, but I apologize. I, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's really good. We wouldn't have continued talking as long if it wasn't as interesting. But the, I think both of us are coming from a similar mindset or worldview which is, you know, driven by curiosity. And so therefore there's a lot to say because we each have um, contributions on what the other person has said. So it's been really awesome. But I just loved hearing about your childhood, you know, the, the grounding that you had in the example of your grandmother as, as one person who was um, willing to do things a little bit differently. You know, your father opening up the opportunity to build and explore and create but then your own journey, you know, following your curiosity, moving overseas, 
um, and, and sort of how that's woven into what you do today. Um, I thought that was really interesting to kind of chart through the life, which is why I asked those questions rather than diving straight into the question of, tell me about the Mind Lab and what, yeah, what, what courses have you got? <laughs> Yeah. So it's kind of the context adds weight and, and richness, I think, to this to the overall story. Um, so, yeah, I just want to finish up by saying thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephen. It. It's been great talk, and I actually really enjoyed hearing from your stories as well. Great. Thank you. I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Francis. As you could tell, there were just so many themes, I'm not going to try to list them all, but one of the things that came through was the power of curiosity and what that can unlock if we're willing to explore it. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog? And there's links to the Mind Lab and the Tech Futures Lab website within the show notes, and heaps more content at theseeds.nz. A big thank you to everybody who's an unofficial ambassador for Seeds. It's only through people like you spreading the word about it that it continues to grow. Until next time! Mm-hmm.